For the past three years, the Science of Reading Star Awards have honored educators who are beacons of light, guiding their classrooms, schools, districts, and most importantly, students through transformations with literacy. Now join us as we honor this year's winners at a special celebration event, which will feature celebrity keynoters and past podcast guests, Mitchell Brookins. Two years ago, one of my students as a school administrator came to me on the playground and he said, Mr. Brookins, I want to be like the other kids. And I said, what do you mean? He said, Mr. Brookins, I want to learn how to read. And Malcolm Mitchell. When I scored a touchdown, they either probably put my name in the newspaper, people probably tell me good job all around town. But when I finished one book, no one ever said anything. So which one am I more likely to repeat? Find out more information and register for the 2024 Science of Reading Star Awards ceremony at amplify.com slash Star Awards celebrations. That's amplify.com slash Star Awards celebration, all one word. What if a change in classroom practice could lead to change in reading outcomes? What should reading instruction include to ensure all students have the opportunity to succeed? What does cognitive science tell us about learning to read? And why aren't those learnings applied in our classrooms? Welcome to Science of Reading, the podcast. I'm your host, Susan Lambert from Amplify Education. Join us every two weeks as we talk with science of reading experts to explore what it takes to transform our classrooms and develop confident and capable readers. In today's episode, we talk about the intersection between cognitive and neuroscience as it relates to developing readers. Bruce McCandless joins me, a professor at Stanford University and the Graduate School of Education. He helps us understand the importance of neuroscience and how it's to help both confirm and extend cognitive science findings. Don't let the word neuroscience scare you away. Bruce breaks things down in truly understandable ways. And after you listen, check out his impressive bio. Well, welcome, Bruce. Thank you so much for being a guest on our podcast today. Well, thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, We always like to start by asking just a little bit about your background and how is it that you ended up in this early literacy space, even though you're a neuroscientist as well? Yeah, that's that's a great question. So when I was training in human neuroscience, it was just around the time that brain scans became safe for children, for imaging what's going on inside the mind and brain of a child and for imaging them repeatedly to see how things were sort of changing over time within a child's mind and brain. And this opened up some really amazing new opportunities to ask new questions that we haven't really asked before. And right around that same time, I was um, told about a young girl who arrived in an inner city Pittsburgh school around age 12, and she was completely unable to read more than just a few words, like the highest frequency words. And they were, the school was struggling what to do with her. They reached out to the university to help find her a tutor. And um, I thought this was an amazing opportunity. And I studied with the, the methods of a master reading teacher named Isabel Beck, who's also a researcher. And she guided me through the process over about six months of how to structure an entire sort of systematic introduction to literacy for this young girl and to walk her through it at her own pace and to personalize it. and 
um, I applied these techniques and some of the techniques were pretty fascinating and it became one, I became really interested in how, how was this working? And um, over the course of six months, I watched this girl go from being complete novice who couldn't read a word to a girl who was really confident just reading whole sentences and um, even paragraphs just confidently on her own and just watching this transformation happen right before my eyes really I was just fascinated. I was wondering like, what is going on inside of her brain that is allowing her to do this? And how is it that our exchanges as a tutor and a student were actually having a cause and effect relationship on her building these new neural circuits and being able to do this? So I really sort of put these two things together, our ability to use brain imaging to kind of ask these new questions and this, I think what is just a remarkable example of human brain plasticity, where the human brain can develop new connections and enable us to do new things, that these two uh, possibilities just sort of came together right around the same time and became something I was just deeply fascinated by and wanted to study more and more. Wow, what, what an amazing success story, both for her and for you. Yeah, no, it was great. I think we both learned a lot in the process. <laughs> and it sounds like it's launched you into doing uh, many, many more things. Um, and you, you talked a little bit about this idea of cognitive science and neuroscience. So as you were maybe working with this girl or as a you know, part of your work, what, how would you describe the connections? How are they similar? Or how are they different? Mm. Well, you know, I think of cognitive science is really the study of like how the mind carries out its central functions, like, you know, recalling our memories or interpreting the feelings in somebody's expression, um, understanding the words we hear and kind of seeing all the objects in the world to guide our thoughts and actions. All of this cognitive science has been studied primarily by really looking in a scientific way at human behavior very, very carefully um, and very analytically and um, we've been able to develop great theories about how function works. And um, these theories have sort of come to really help explain how the human mind works. But at the same time, advances in neuroimaging, so just brain scanning, have, been, have really allowed us to take all of these functions and study them in a whole new way um, by understanding how different networks in the brain contribute to specific functions. It opens up a whole bunch of new questions that um, really sort of work hand in glove with cognitive science. So we can kind of ask, how does this network, if you can measure it, you can ask, how does one network differ from one learner to another in ways that really matter? And how do networks change over the course of a really successful uh, learning engagement or tutoring uh, experience or something like this? And what is the typical path from novice to expert? And then where are places that kids really get stuck along the way and how can we help them? By studying cognitive science together with the methods of neuroimaging, we develop this new kind of hybrid way of looking at things, which is much more powerful than just looking at behavior alone. Sure, and then your, I've heard you talk about your work. Your work is an even more, right now at least, an even more specific mm -hmm. in that it relates to an intersection between this neuroscience and education. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, um, so moving beyond just cognitive neuroscience or even like how children develop, how the mind develops within a child's head, there are these new questions coming up that are really about the interaction between a child's educational experience and their brain development. 
So there's a lot of big questions like at the heart of educational neuroscience, as it specifically as it relates to the science of reading. So we can start to ask, what are the most important changes going on in the, the brain of a child as they learn to read? And this has been a fascinating area of research that really connects something beyond just like basic brain function and into really the specific kind of products or most important achievements of education. Um, then we can also ask questions that I think are really interacting with what we do in early education, which was we try to understand what are the basic skills that a child brings to education that they're actually building upon, that's the strengths that they have already, that they're actively engaging while they're learning. And what are these basic skills that are most important for a child when they come to the task and the challenge of learning to read? We can start to use uh, neuroimaging or the educational neuroscience to ask these kind of building block questions to really understand why you know, a child that might struggle with rhyming, there may be particular networks in their brain that make it really a different challenge for them when they learn to read than other children. And really the hope is that by combining uh, cognitive neuroscience and these educational questions that you know, brain imaging of these basic pre-reading skills might help us understand why some children struggle so profoundly. And maybe even that understanding the process of rewiring the brain for reading can actually help us help struggling readers in a new way and really check our understanding of how this works in a, in a brand new way. But beyond all this, I think there's a new question emerging in the field of education, which is really this question about, can the way a teacher focuses a child's attention during learning impact how the neural networks in their brain are changing? And this is really a question that is at the center of educational neuroscience. Does the way we set up educational experiences and the, the resources we bring to bear and the challenges we provide for these kids and the supports we give them, can that actually have an impact on the process, the brain mechanisms that are changing that support our ability that support our ability to learn to read. That's super fascinating. And I think many of our listeners uh, probably aren't as familiar with the impact that neuroscience is having in terms of classroom instruction and what that might mean. We've spent a lot of time um, on this podcast so far talking about you know, what it, what it takes, right, for kids to actually become proficient readers. And I'm really curious about what your point of view is on that as it relates to the work that you're doing. Yeah, well, I think that for me, again, um, the science of reading, which is you know sort of a cognitive science of really understanding how things are sort of changing over time and how the, the expert brain really does its job is really working hand in glove with brain imaging around two really big ideas that I think are really important for educators to understand. So if you think about reading, you can kind of divide it into two pretty separate systems or two big challenges that kids and brains have to overcome. So first think about a system whose job it is to turn collections of letters into the exact word that was intended. So this might be one out of what might be tens of thousands of candidate words that you're looking at at this moment and your brain figures out what the exact word is that relates to those letters. And this has been a really difficult problem for cognitive science to work out how on earth does a human brain do this in the expert? And even a bigger question about how it is that kids 
really crack this code and learn how to decode letters and turn them into the sounds of language. And it turns out that this whole system is one of the most dramatic changes which is occurring in a kid during the first couple years of learning to read. We can image those changes, we can understand systems in that word recognition system. And crucially, it's not just sort of a one and done, like the brain learns to decode letters, but the quality of this system, the precision and the fluency of this system has a huge impact on another system, which is another whole set of brain networks that are really key at comprehending the, the sentences that these words are forming. So two systems working together, one, you almost have to build a word recognition circuit in your brain that works really, really well at turning letters directly into the exact words. And it has its own sort of automatic process when education goes really well. And then a second system, which is really putting those words together into understanding what the sentence is and you know, what the nuances of that word mean and continuing to build vocabulary and semantic networks and all of these things that we think about as being foundational to education. So it sounds like there is rewiring happening all over within our brains for sort of both pieces of these processes. Yes, yes, I think that's exactly the way to think about it. There's this rewiring process where neural circuits in the brain that were really meant to build these uh, sort of basic subskills, like recognizing all the things that we see in the world and knowing exactly what they are, or hearing all the sounds that human mouths are making and knowing exactly what word they're saying. These two different systems can rewire in a way remarkable human brain plasticity going on in the first couple of years of learning where kids really learn to take two precursor systems and wire them together into this integrated circuit that can automatically recognize visual words. Yeah, that's fascinating. And, and, and I know I've heard you and others say too that we know that learning to read is not a natural process and it's something our brains have not yet evolved to do. Can you set the stage for that or talk a little bit more about that? Yes. Um, so in most cultures, we believe uh, that don't necessarily integrate literacy, like early alphabetic literacy into all of their societal interactions and everything. Some of the most important things for the human brain to do are to really rapidly process visual information, and then completely separate systems that really have to rapidly identify the spoken words. And these two systems are, in a sense, um, natural systems as part of the, the human evolutionary niche to be able to do these things profoundly. And we find that it's sort of a universal across the world that children grow up to be able to do these things with really, really uh, kind of amazing speed and accuracy. And, but these two systems were not really designed to work together. So the invention of literacy is really asking kids to take two subsystems that they kind of have some mastery over and combine them together in a brand new way so that the, the system that analyzes all the visual features of objects is now talking directly to the system that analyzes all of the, the little parts within spoken words to figure out what, which words people are saying. And these two systems are physically wired together. There are new functional connections between these systems that are unfolding over the first couple of years of literacy, and they're continuing to strengthen all the way across the, the sort of literacy journey to expert reader. Wow. 
and you can you can actually watch that happen then with with brain imaging. Yes, that's where the field is right now. There are a multiple studies happening in different places all over the world that are kind of taking snapshots of children, you know, every two weeks or every two months and watching the sort of in stop motion photography, the evolution of this brain reading circuitry. Um, it's remarkable to see and to study um, as like one of the big questions in science is how is it that our learning experiences are reprogramming the circuitry of the brain? And you, I've, I've, you've been able to look at like the brains or the work, inner workings of those very proficient readers and compared to the brains or the inner workings of those that are not as proficient and make some comparisons? Yes, that's been a, a remarkable aspect of the field is moving beyond the question of like, how does the human brain learn to read, which has been kind of a big mystery. Um, <laughs> and we've, we've gotten some great insights into that, but moving beyond the human brain, it turns out that there are pretty big and pretty important individual differences in sort of all of the human brains. So in any one classroom, there's a whole diversity of strengths that kids have in sort of processing the, the little sounds within spoken language and processing all of the visual features within objects and how these subsystems work. There's incredible variety, uh, what you could call neurodiversity within a classroom. And studying how differences that matter between kids before they learn to read wind up impacting the reading acquisition process has been like a very exciting kind of growth area for science. And we're starting to learn, or actually, I think I see it more of as a convergence of knowledge that the science of reading, which has been sort of decades ahead of this neuroimaging studies, um, have really found a whole lot of really profound insights into how learning to read and how this word recognition system is functioning in different kids and what sorts of supports they need when reading is struggling or they're failing to learn to read. Mm. That's, that's really interesting given, given all the attention right now that we have to those students that um, are dyslexic or exhibiting signs of dyslexia to be able to actually get inside the head to figure out what it is that we need to do for intervention. Yeah, no, it's been a, a remarkable growth area and I see it kind of fortifying what we've been learning in the science of reading and even extending it in novel ways to really try to understand like what are the dynamics of the brain systems that are most crucial for learning to read. Um, in some of our studies that we've done in uh, with New York City public school children, we found that the way a kid's brain activates is during reading can be really largely predicted by a simple test that asks how facile they are at things like rhyming or pig Latin or these phonological awareness games. And we've had studies in which we just, we look at how active is the brain when a child just looks at a very simple word and makes a very simple decision about it. You can look at the brain activity during that entire process and you can actually predict brain activity, how active this circuit is for an individual child based on how well they do on this sort of precursor skill of phonological awareness, suggesting that there's a profound relationship between how individual kids sort of come into uh, the reading journey, if you will, how, how skilled they are already at processing the sounds within words and manipulating those sounds and accessing those sounds within words, it has a profound impact on how active their brain circuit will be 
when they're actually reading visual words. So I'm going to say that back to you another way. So basically, what what we know is that uh, for early readers, this phonological phonemic awareness work and instruction is really important as a foundational element. And what you're saying is that that's what's actually mapping then to this other part of the brain when we start to then recognize sounds and letter combinations or words. Yes, that's a crucial part of the sort of expert reading circuit is this connection between the visual forms of letters and words and the spoken forms of the sounds of language. Um, so we're, we're learning a lot about how these two things connect and how, uh, how critically important those precursor skills are for building the circuit. And this is not, in a sense, this is not really news. This is not really something, some novel discovery in a way, but it's really a convergence of science, of uh, the science that has been studying the behaviors of children for decades. And now this, this really sort of uh, more precise, exact way of looking at the circuits and how they're working inside of a child's brain, they're really converging to support this notion that um, expert word recognition is really fundamentally related to taking all the codes that the brain uses to understand objects, taking all the codes that the brain uses to understand spoken words, and really linking them together in this novel way. Yeah, so it's an, you would say then it's more of an affirmation then of the cognitive science. Well, an affirmation and also an extension, because now we can take that very same brain circuit and we can study it before a child learns to read. Mm. We can study the precursors of a child. We can see, you know, if a child has profound visual difficulties or a child has even uh, subtle challenges with thinking about the sounds of language, we can look at the circuits that are, that are related to that and watch how they change as the child learns to read. And so this, I think, is taking this basic set of insights that we have from cognitive science and giving them new tools to explore how is this thing changing with experiences? How are, how are these rewirings being influenced by really specific interventions that might really focus a child's attention on these skills and help scaffold them in sort of making incremental gains in these skills and strengthening those skills really specifically? And this is, I think, where education and kind of brain imaging or the neurosciences or the cognitive neuroscience are really sort of coming together to kind of create a dialogue in this space of how should we be supporting these children? What, what kind of things might be useful and what kind of things are specifically useful to the particular challenges they're having? Yeah, and I, I'd like to, to segue to talk a little bit about a study that you actually did with different instructional approaches to to helping kids learn to read a word um, based on sort of this idea of a whole word or sort of the letter sounds. Can you explain that study to us? Yeah, this, this is one of my favorite studies that we did because I think it really captures this question about education, the education part of educational neuroscience. And, you know, we started with this basic question, like, could the way uh, a learner winds up changing their brain networks uh, over time be directly influenced by how the teacher kind of introduces and supports uh, the action. So for example, if we took learners and we taught them uh, a brand new writing system that they'd never seen before, 
And we made sure that they had exactly the same uh, materials and the same exact sort of time to study. And they were the same exact learners kind of randomized to these different conditions. And we only wanted to vary just one thing. And that was, did, their, did the instructions that they got from the teacher at the beginning really focus their mind on the sounds of language, really focus on this really very specific subskill of linking every single letter within a word to every nuance in its spoken form. And we had instructions and supports and activities that really specifically focused on that versus if the, the same learners taking the very same materials, if they had a teacher that was really focusing their minds on recognizing all of the words, just try to figure out what the word is. Um, you might get a hint or you might get the name of a word and just try to link the name of the word directly to that word without ever thinking about the parts inside. And we contrasted how learning played out over the course of several learning sessions. And we measured incremental improvements in using these very sort of scientific meth methods for looking at increments of learning over time. And we were able to essentially discover that there were pretty big differences in the way just this subtle form of support has on the way the learners were, were progressing over time. So when the learners were focused on sort of letters and sounds and working out this relationship, learning was a little bit slower. And, but they had a tremendous ability to decode words that they've never seen before in this new writing system. Hmm. When, when the, the same kind of learners were focused on learning these words just as a whole language sort of approach, just look at the word and say it, I'll say it to you, just kind of memorize that relationship, never focus on the parts inside. Learning was pretty rapid, but it was actually pretty fragile as well. So if they learned one set of words, they come back and learn the next set of words and actually learning is degraded a little bit. There's interference between one set of words and another inner set of words, which makes sense. The words all kind of look the same and they all kind of sound the same. And as you learn more and more of these, they start to interfere with each other. And that there's, you're really prone to getting mixed up and making mistakes. Hmm. Um, but the most interesting part of this is that we combined this with a brain scanning technique uh, called event-related potentials. And we were able to examine how their brains were changing over time as they were engaged in this learning. And remarkably, it turns out that the learners that were focused on the, the parts within the words, how the letters relate to the sounds and how to decode things. When they saw these words, we looked at the, the brain activity just about uh, 200 milliseconds after they saw the word. Their brain showed this remarkable left lateralized pattern. We could see this um, kind of activity that was related to their learning that really looked a lot like what expert readers do. There's like this engagement of these left hemisphere mechanisms that are really important for decoding words. But when the other group looked at the very same words that they studied for the same amount of time, but they had focused on the entire word and just this paired association method, when they looked at these words, they showed a very different brain network engaged. It was more of a right hemisphere activity. And we really didn't see them uh, emulating what we see in the sort of expert reader. So, this to us drove home this really fascinating uh, hypothesis that really part of what's going on in early reading may be that teachers are really helping to focus children's attention on 
working out all of these parts between letters and the way they're pronounced and working out this really systematic and fluent and automatic sort of set of associations that allow them to decode any word, those teachers are helping kids build this left hemisphere expert reading circuit. And when children are completely unscaffolded and just asked to memorize a whole bunch of words, that they're not really activating this circuit very well at all. And instead, they're activating a, a right hemisphere circuit that might be much less efficient for reading. So in a sense, teachers play a huge role in shaping brain development for reading. Wow. And a couple of things just jumped out at me about that is, number one, when they're focusing on the sounds of the individual letters, you said it took a little more time but it turned out to be pretty deep learning and deep connection, sort of mirroring that what expert readers do. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, another way of looking at this is that, you know, there's been this old idea in reading pedagogy for quite some time that if you just expose children to entire words and help them see what that entire word is by memorization or supports or guessing that the brain will just figure out how the little parts work inside there. Mm -hmm. and work out all those mappings between the letters and how they map onto the spoken part of pronunciations. And the brain will just figure all that out kind of almost subconsciously. And it turns out that even in uh, really skilled readers with like no you know, neurotypical brains, that this doesn't really happen. That really there are circumstances under which you have to actively attend. You have to drive selective attention to these little parts for the brain to create that activation and to kind of get that rewiring process happening. Yeah. So, you know, we've often heard, or I've often heard the idea that, you know, your brain is like a muscle, you just use it and, and it gets stronger and stronger and stronger. This to me feels like, there, you know, there's a difference between using a muscle and actually doing the work of re rewiring. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and and the importance uh, that a teacher would play in what you've called this sort of selective attention to information. Can you expand a little bit on that concept? Yeah, so, um, well, just going on the muscle analogy for a second, you might think yeah. that the brain is like a muscle, so you activate your muscles and the muscles grow. Um, it turns out when people are actually training for uh, elite sports, they don't just go and activate all of their muscles, getting lots of experience running around in all kinds of random ways, but they actually very selectively attend to particular muscles that they want to train, that they want to make very sort of efficient and stronger. And by targeting those muscles in this kind of isolation way, they can lead to really rapid growth of these muscles. And then they can learn to integrate those muscles in various ways. And I think there's a deep parallel to that and learning. So when you're in a classroom or when you're sort of in a reading lesson, there are dozens and dozens of things that might capture your attention that you might focus on or you might sort of find interesting and focus your mind on briefly and your mind might dart around between all of these things. But a really skilled teacher can guide a student's mind to selectively attend to the patterns of letters within visual words and focus their attention on each individual letter and learn specifically how that relates to the pronunciation of the word. And when children focus their minds in this way, just the act of focusing has a remarkable phenomena that we call a top-down attention uh, activation. So when you focus your mind on a very specific thing, 
the brain circuit related to that function actually increases its activity. So we've done experiments in which we've asked, uh, you know, fully literate adults to lie into, inside of a scanner and to listen to words and music. And then we were studying if they selectively attend to the words and selectively attend to the sound within the words to make rhyming judgments. And that's their goal. They're, they're using their, their intention to focus their mind on the rhymes within words. We see this activation of this entire um, kind of reading expert network that includes analyzing the sounds within language and all the way down to the brain areas that recognize visual words. But when they listen to the same exact thing and they focus their attention on something else like the music, this entire network becomes suppressed. So in a sense, the thing that we're attending to Im Im directly impacts our brain activity. So teachers can guide attention to particular information and increase activity in very specific networks uh, for children that can have that can play a role in how these things are rewiring and how they're changing. So selective attention, in a sense, becomes this uh, construct that we can use inside neuroscience in this highly specific way to looking at how selective attention increased brain activity in a very particular circuit like reading. But we can also use selective attention as a bridge to education. And teachers can really learn how to guide a student's selective attention to the most important information that they should be focusing on. And there's a number of pedagogical techniques that can really help a child focus specifically on sort of just their zone of proximal development of how they're decoding words or how efficiently their brain is you know being able to map all of the letters within a words to its pronunciation and build up you know larger and larger vocabulary and it's really i think a new way of thinking about the art of teaching is that you're actually playing a role in this brain development process by guiding selective attention to the most important information at just the right time that's fascinating. And you know, what that makes me think of is the example that you used at the beginning of our conversation about Isabella Beck helping you understand what that child needed in order to become a proficient reader. Um, sort, sort of the same idea. Yeah, I think so. Um, Isabel Beck, when, when we looked at her techniques um, from the lens of cognitive neuroscience and cognitive science, this really clear picture emerged that there's a lot of techniques that you can really use to drive a child's selective attention to every single letter within a visual word form, which is challenging for a lot of kids. They often yeah. just look at the first letter and kind of guess, and right. their, their brain never really uses this attention spotlight to focus exactly on which letter happens in exactly which order and how that should impact their pronunciation. And Isabel had these amazing techniques where you know she would put words in instead of just having them be like a visual object she would put every single letter on an individual tile and then she would just take away one tile at a time and ask the kid well what would happen to the word if i did this and <laughs> grab one little tile and put another tile in there what would happen to the word pronunciation if i did this and what that did is it allowed the children to take this skill that they had this amazing skill really of nearly 100 percent accuracy of looking at the first letter and getting that pronunciation into their guess and she helped them take that strength and apply it to every single position within the visual word form by guiding their selective attention there and then providing supports about how this impacts the pronunciation. 
and keep adjusting the challenge so that it becomes more and more challenging and the kid uh, extends their skill you know to the, the next level of complexity and the next level of complexity until suddenly they can really competently decode like all 3000 monosyllabic words that can be possibly written in the english language yeah so knowing that that sound letter mapping allowed them to generalize that um, in ways that whole word instruction doesn't let you do that. Yeah, and, and it wasn't just a, a sort of an isolated letter sound mapping. I think this is sometimes lost when people think about a cartoon version of things like a, a, a systematic phonics curriculum or something. But mm -hmm. really, um, the, the techniques that are most effective are using real words and are helping kids to focus when they look at a word to represent the entire word at the same time, appreciate what the phonetic elements are for every position within the word. So the child in a sense builds this fortified word recognition system, which can look at every single grain size simultaneously. So you can look at a word and you can say, oh, I know exactly what that word is. I've seen it a thousand times. Or you can look at a word and you can say, oh, I recognize that rhyme unit you know, those, those last four letters at the end of the word, they, they might make a sound like eed, or like eed or ode or uh, ooh. And they can learn to recognize those rhyme units as well as recognizing sort of every single consonant and every single vowel and the impact that they have. So, so when they look at a visual word, they're in a sense firing on all cylinders. They can recognize the word at the word level. They can recognize the rhyme at the rhyme level. They can recognize the onset. They can recognize each individual phoneme. And by combining all these skills at once, they have a very rapid and robust word recognition experience. And when you have a rapid and robust word recognition experience, guess what happens? Reading comprehension becomes easier. You can actually focus your mind on the message that's being taught. And this is one of the big insights of uh, Chuck Perfetti's work, that the quality of your word recognition for the up, you know, way up well into third grade and fourth grade is one of the biggest determiners of how well you can comprehend you know, an entire passage. Hmm. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, and, and what's so interesting about this work that you're doing is I think as proficient readers and even as teachers as proficient readers, we forget the hard work that it takes early in the reading process to really develop that strong foundation to be able to put the decoding aside to be able to focus then on the comprehension. Yeah, yeah. It's it's easy to sort of just look at that and say, kind of wonder and shrug, what's the big problem? But yeah. when you really look at the computations that the human brain is doing during word recognition, yeah. you're marveled at how do people ever even do this? Like. Here's the problem from the brain's perspective. I, I know like, let's say 40,000 words, and here's one of them in a collection of five letters. Which of these 50,000 words is that? <laughs> yeah. How do I, and you have to figure that out in the blink of an eye, like in less than 220 milliseconds, you have to know exactly what word that is. And how the brain solves this problem is really remarkable. And I think that, you know, this discovery of phonetic coding that the Phoenicians had, was like a really huge jump forward that enabled a lot of literacy to really take off. And they probably never knew that you were going to be able to look inside of the brain and see what happens to that as people are sounding out words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what's, what's next and what's new in your work um, as it relates to cognitive neuroscience and literacy? 
Um, well, there's a couple of things going on that I think are really quite exciting. So most of what happens um, in terms of trying to connect education and neuroscience seems to happen in a way that goes over this really big separation between dynamic things that are happening within a school system as a child progresses through school and a university lab, which is sort of often in the basement of some building that <laughs> uses a, a, a brain scanner that might weigh over two tons and a child gets inside of a little tube and you know we change the magnetic gradient so fast that they make these really loud pinging noises. And trying to relate these two things, uh, there's sort of a, a huge uh, gap in between them. You know, the isolated brain imaging lab at the university and the, all of the dynamic contextual like learning that's happening inside schools. Sure. And I think that that's beginning to change. Um, there's an initiative at Stanford to try to bring brain imaging directly into school and actually making it a part of the school, make it a, a tool that the school uses to teach children about their own kind of brains and how they work and how they're developing and how you know, focusing their attention and changing their mental states and meditative states can actually change their brain's function in the moment and the way they can see it um, is now a real possibility. So we have a, a really unique partnership uh, happening with a local school in which we've set up uh, a brain imaging center right inside the school. It's wow. focused mostly on studying brain waves, um, and we are able to use brain waves to look at this expert reading circuit as it's developing in school. And we have uh, studies going on right now in which we're asking the question, how are these students' brains changing over the course of a school year? Um, and how might it relate to sort of what the teachers are observing and what they're uh, reporting on a whole number of factors that are going on with that child? And we're also uh, exploring other things to say like, how are children towards the end of this K-8 experience, how are their brains automatically recognizing words when they're trying to comprehend messages. Wow, that's really exciting to have these two things coming together all in one place. I would imagine that's going to be leaps forward in terms of understandings of how we can help students learn how to read. Yeah, another big exciting development in terms of uh, really looking at reading is there's been a, a really great growth of studies looking at this second system of language, oral, oral language comprehension and reading comprehension as it works out in the brain networks. And mm. there are fascinating things that are happening to look at, you know, what are the circuits in the brain that we use when we're trying to infer the mental state of a character in a story that we're listening to or reading. And it turns out that these circuits, these comprehension circuits that are doing all of this complex social cognition are really quite distinct from these circuits that are just doing the automatic word recognition for us. And we can start to see how do these two systems work together to support what we think of as this unified ability of reading. Wow, that's really interesting. So now we're actually talking about sort of both elements of the simple view of reading, both language comprehension and word recognition and how they inter intersect and interplay with each other. Yeah, and one of the hopes is that we can take this challenge of reading comprehension and we could start to understand all of its basic building blocks and all of the big kind of bottlenecks and transformations that kids go through when they become expert kind of reading comprehenders. Yeah, which is the ultimate goal, right? Yeah, yeah. I've been working with a, a whole network of researchers that are trying to understand what are all of the, the basic components or micro skills that a, a really skilled third grader might use when they're 
comprehending a text. And it turns out that they're doing a remarkable number of things that the pre-reader has really no clue about. And um, we're studying how is it that we could help kids sort of like accelerate their development or support their development in all of those little micro skills. Hmm. Interesting. So if some of our listeners were curious about following some of that work, what's the best way for us to follow that work? Oh, um, that's a great question. What's the best <laughs> way to follow this work? Um, I, I think that um, there are um, emerging uh, literatures that really sit right at the boundary between uh, education and neuroscience. So there are a number of journals now that really focus on like what are meaningful neuroscience uh, kind of breakthroughs and discoveries and building theories that actually have a potential impact or a dialogue to be played with education. So there are a number of journals out there uh, like educational neuroscience and trends in educational science and uh, mind, brain and education, just to name a few that are specifically focused on this intersection between cognitive science and education. And the dialogue just gets richer and richer every year. Thanks for that. And we'll try to find those and and link our listeners to that in in some of the show notes. this has just been so great to have you have you on today, just to help us understand, you know, just more about how how the brain is working and what we need to do in terms of instruction to help all students be successful. And I'm, you know, hoping that as we sort of wrap up here, you could maybe end um, by giving our listeners one or maybe two takeaways that uh, that you'd want them to remember or think more about as it relates to learning how to read. Um, wow. One thing I'd love teachers to take away is uh, a new understanding of what, what teachers are actually doing. Um, the way teachers sort of shape their lessons and their supportive challenges for children may actually be helping to shape and challenge and strengthen very particular brain circuits, which are going to be crucial foundations for a kid's future learning. So teachers, in a sense, are kind of like learning engineers that are helping the child, cooperating with the child to engineer new abilities within that child's brain that are they're going to take with them for a lifetime. You know, that's amazing. Um, I was I was a classroom teacher and I think, you know, I didn't get always get the respect that I that I felt like I should have sort of shaping new minds. So maybe we can just change the title of teacher to learning engineer. Maybe that would be helpful. (laughs) Maybe that would be helpful. But I do think that you, you probably might, regardless of respect from outside, you probably did get something that a lot of people don't get to experience. And that is witnessing firsthand the transformation that's happening in another human being right in front of you. I think this is the thing that teachers thrive on seeing and is a dividend that they get that really no other profession provides in quite the same way. That is absolutely true. Um, And I know teachers that I talk with across the country and classrooms that I'm in, that's the thing that drove them to education, right? Is that transformation that happens within the school year um, Mm -hmm. with their students. So, Well, thank you very much for joining us. Like I said, we'll link our listeners in the show notes to some of the resources you recommend and keep us up to date on what's happening. Oh, I'd love to. Thanks for a great conversation. Okay, take care. We're so grateful to our amazing guest today and to all of you making a difference in the lives of students every single day. 
Be sure to check the show notes for resource links from today's podcast, and we want to hear your stories and successes. Follow us on Facebook at Science of Reading the Community, or if you're looking to help implement the science of reading, send an email to sormatters at amplify.com. Tell us what guests you think we should book or tell us about the research that really excites you. And be sure to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Susan Lambert.